When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. February 16th, 2023, the President Nikki Haley question mark edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I am joined by John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time from New York City. Hello, John. On this show. Not in life, but on this show. And, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School back, back safely in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. This week on the GabFest, Nikki Haley is running for president. Will she be the non-Trump, non-DeSantis alternative that some Republicans, like six Republicans, are waiting for? Then, as the Supreme Court prepares to gut affirmative action at universities, Emily has a brilliant piece about how university affirmative action came to be, and we'll talk to her about that. Then, maybe Congress can get along. Amanda Ripley will join us to talk about the bipartisan House committee that actually works and why it actually works. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder that we are hiring a researcher. If you love the GabFest, you love Slate, maybe you should apply. Uh, It's a part-time position. It is paid. It's flexible, but you'll probably work about 15 to 20 hours a week, and you do have to be available from 8.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. Eastern time on Thursday mornings. Uh, Most of the work is on Wednesdays and Thursdays. You should be organized and self-directed and politically aware and engaged and be a fast and thorough researcher who possesses good news judgment. Um, and if you're interested, I hope you are, please send us a resume and a cover letter to GabFest at Slate.com. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. 
Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, announced that she is running for president. We're ready, ready to move past the stale ideas and faded names of the past. And we are more than ready for a new generation to lead us into the future. The 51-year-old Haley is positioning herself as the lukewarm water of the Republican field, an adult with real experience, not Trumpish, but not anti-Trump, a new generation, a different look. She's a Indian-American. She's a woman. She is polling at nowhere right now, basically. It's like slightly above nowhere, sort of two train stations from nowhere. But she is hoping, John, to be the alternative to Trump and DeSantis, the reasonable adult who can emerge from the pack that she and Larry Hogan and Chris Christie and Glenn Youngkin and Brian Kemp and Asa Hutchinson and Tim Scott and Mike Pence will comprise. So is she likely to emerge from that pack? In a previous world, you... uh you could make a strong case. I mean, she comes from an important primary state. She has experience as a governor. She did well by the um, standards of the Republican Party as governor of South Carolina in terms of regulations and taxes, executive branch experience as ambassador to the UN. So she's got a a foreign policy piece. That's, you know, that's a pretty good place to start if you're a Republican in the the old days. Uh, The problem is that she is also a symbol of the push and pull in the party and her own uh, first denunciation of Donald Trump throughout the primaries and then her careful um, um, coddling of him and making excuses for him as a part of his administration. And she was one of the few people to leave the administration um, on good terms. Most people were ejected by catapult and then constantly attacked by Trump. She wasn't. If she wants to be the kind of used to be a larger portion of the party, the um, traditional Republican wing. She's got to fight for it. And she points out that Republicans have lost seven of the last eight uh, um, presidential elections in the popular vote. Um, And then she also says there should be a cognitive test for any candidate over 75. That's a shot at Joe Biden, of course, but it's also a shot at her old boss. But those are all sub Rosa. Um, And uh, I think if you want this turf, you got to grab it. Um, And I don't think that's in that's not her inclination. Emily, if you were trying to excite Republicans about a Nikki Haley candidacy, if you were trying to gin up enthusiasm, what would you say about it? She's young. She's this new generation, and she could. She's not that young. Well, she's in the. She's (laughs) she's our age. I normally right. I mean, normally I would say fifty one is old since it's how old I am. But in the context of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it's spring chicken. 
And she could beat Joe Biden, right? You could imagine her as a good general election candidate. One of the potential knocks on Ron DeSantis is he's supposed to be kind of supremely unlikable in small settings, that when people hang out with him, they're just like turned off. I don't know if that's true or not. Never met the man. But if it is true and he doesn't campaign well in that kind of retail small setting, she seems like she would be better at all of that. And she's from South Carolina. So she has that lead in this early primary state, like Uh, or potentially. Suburban women obviously are a part of the Republican Party that they lost decisively with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump keeps driving them away, did it again, even in the off year when he wasn't even on the ballot. She certainly would help with that constituency. Um, But what I meant when I said you've got to go and take it, I don't mean that she has to go clobber Donald Trump on the head. That's, you know, setting a bar too high for her. But what I do think I mean is if you're going to say, We need a new generation, and only through me and this new generation are we going to win and reverse this seven out of eight losses. You got to make the case. You got to make the claim in a positive way or build it on something. And so far, based on the um, rollout she's had so far, it's all sort of vague and. You know, there's some she's also trying to sort of play some culture war stuff with her announcement. It started with the 1619 project and visuals of AOC, though, as Colbert pointed out, on the one hand, she's saying racism isn't, um, you know, around uh, anymore. And her ad nevertheless starts with her talking about how how there was a railroad track through the town she grew up with in which the you know, that separated the town into whites and blacks. So. Oh, that was so long ago, John. So long ago. It's all over now. And well, then then more contemporaneously, I, I thought a really, um, I think, strong symbol of her confusion was in her announcement video. She mentioned the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church, um, in which um, a white racist um, Confederate flag flying uh, gunmen killed black parishioners who had welcomed him in to pray with them. And Haley mentioned the massacre and said the town responded with a love of God. The government also responded by taking down the South Carolina flag with the Confederate flag symbol on it from the state house. And she at the time signed that bill was very proud of that. It was such an important moment for the Republican Party that the chairman of the Republican Party at the time, Reince Priebus, flew down to South Carolina to be there at the ceremony where Haley signed the bill. And according to Haley's aides at the time, worked his way in so that he could be in the television shot so that he could send the signal that the Republican Party was not associated with this wing that ultimately would basically march through Charlottesville and with, with which it is now much more associated she didn't mention any of that. She didn't mention her role in in taking down the flag at all. That's a symbol of how confused the candidacy is at the moment. And how much the Republican Party has changed. Yeah, yeah. Look at this pile. So you have DeSantis and Trump, who clearly are dominating the polling, uh, the dominant figures in what looks to be the, the Republican primary. And then off to the side... I named a bunch of them. I'll name them again. Christie, Youngkin, Kemp, Hutchinson, Scott, Pence, Hogan, Haley. Um, maybe I'm forgetting one or two. What will be the process that sorts them out, John? And is it certain that one of them will emerge as some kind of alternative or not necessarily? Could it just be that they all remain sort of little Tweedledees to the two giants? The effort to shuffle... Donald Trump off the stage from the elites in the party seems to be pretty much thoroughly in underway. Um, and 
of course, we saw in 2016, there was an effort to do that, and it failed spectacularly. He took energy from it. And essentially, the non-Trump vote, which was greater than the Trump vote in the Republican primaries in 2016, nevertheless split, and he won. Um, It feels different this time. His act has worn thin. Um, Does DeSantis fall of his own weight? It seems that the first test is going to be a culture war test. Mike Pence is in Iowa. talking about uh, gender issues and parental choice. Obviously, DeSantis has been talking about that and will and we'll use the next session of the legislature, which he controls, essentially, um, to launch a series of culture war um, gambits that will win him attention and win him um, the plaudits of those people who are or that make up that part of the Republican Party. He's got a great platform to do that that other candidates don't. But he could also have a major misstep that, you know, uh, I mean, Scott Walker looked legitimately poised to do really well in 2016, and he crashed and burned on the launch pad. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. You get so much good stuff. No ads on any Slate podcast. You get full bonus episodes of some Slate podcasts. Unlimited reading on the Slate site. You can become a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest plus. And today we're going to talk about the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and uh, John has some thoughts. I've got some thoughts. Emily may have some thoughts by the time we talk about it. You should go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Emily, you have a big new piece in the New York Times magazine. I don't even say the magazine anymore. It's like just the New York Times. Who gets? There's no magazine. It's just a piece of digital space that maybe has some weird logo on it. You have a piece in the New York Times Perens magazine about how the affirmative action regimen in American universities came to be, how the Backey decision in the mid-1970s set university affirmative action policies on the path they have taken for almost 50 years and set it towards their almost certain demise when the Supreme Court issues a decision in its latest university affirmative action case later this year. So um, Tell us why you decided to write about Becky now and, and why it was important to understand why does it matter? I mean, it's about to go away. Why does it matter where it came from? So this idea was actually came from the editor of the New York Times magazine, Jake Silverstein, and he was reading about affirmative action and racial justice and law in general and realized that he didn't really know where the affirmative action law came from. And in particularly where this idea that the justification for it um under the Constitution should be benefits from diversity in education. And so he just sort of set me on this historical path, like, where did that come from? Tell us about Backy. And when I started, I wasn't really sure what I was going to find. I only remembered bits of this piece um, of history from law school. What I found was pretty fascinating, at least to me. So in some ways, the diversity rationale is a kind of accident. And what I mean by that is that... Um, In 1973, there was this earlier case um, called Defunis that goes to the Supreme Court for a minute before it gets declared moot. So it's not the big ruling that Backey turns into. But in that moment, in the winter of 1973, the president of Harvard, Derek Bach, was worrying about affirmative action and the impact that a ruling against, in that case, the University of Washington Law School would have on schools like Harvard which were doing something a little different than 
the University of Washington, but were taking race into account in admissions because they had this long history of racial exclusion. They were trying to diversify their student bodies and be inclusive. And so Bach um, asked Archibald Cox to write a brief for Harvard. Archibald Cox was free because he'd just been fired as the special prosecutor investigating President Nixon. And this is like an incredibly important historical moment in our history in which Cox, as special prosecutor, demands the tapes from Nixon's office. Nixon orders him to be fired. The attorney general at the time resigns. The number two resigns. And then the number three, Robert Bork, fires Cox. So Cox is kind of lonely that winter. He went up to this family farm in Maine. He was apparently chopping a lot of wood, according to his biographer. And he dives into affirmative action. He makes in this brief the standard argument that affirmative action is about remedying racism and historical wrongs and present wrongs. But he also looks into what Harvard is actually doing. And Harvard, since the 60s, has been trying to show that you should have a broader demographic for your student body. And Harvard has a long history of this and goes in and out. And there's an ugly period of a Jewish quota And in the 20s, a time when they also literally ejected from the dorms and the dining halls the few black students they had. But in the 60s, they were looking at the civil rights movement. They were trying to correct for some of that. And they were making a full-throated diversity argument. You know, the Idaho farm boy brings something different to Harvard than the city kid. And often black students bring something different from white students. It's all kind of there in their literature. So Cox brings up this argument. And then it gets repurposed in back in 1977 because Cox winds up arguing before the Supreme Court the case of Backey itself. And in at oral argument in 77, he doesn't actually talk about diversity. He doesn't bring it up. But there's a crucial justice on the Supreme Court at the time, Lewis Powell, who's from Virginia. And it turns out, unbeknownst to Cox, that Powell is looking for a kind of middle ground compromise. He is not comfortable with remedying past exclusion. He thinks there is no way to kind of limit that principle. And also, he's a Virginian who has his own kind of checkered past on this when he was the head of the school board in Richmond. They barely, barely let any of the black kids into schools. So in 1961, and that's seven years after Brown versus Board orders desegregation, there are only two black kids going to school in Richmond with 23,000 white kids. So Lewis Powell's kind of particular historical figure, and he latches onto this diversity rationale. Nobody else goes for it on the court. The four liberals want to remedy past exclusion and deal with current racism. The conserv- other conservatives want to say no consider of race ever. The Constitution is colorblind. Title VI, which is the 1964 federal civil rights law that's at issue here, also supposed to be colorblind in their view. But Powell is the fifth vote. And so his view kind of pragmatically speaking wins the day. And then in 2003, it becomes the majority view of the Supreme Court in an opinion that Sandra Day O'Connor writes about the University of Michigan. So it's just this very odd history where, in a sense, Cox saves affirmative action, but he also kind of tragically, I think, really hobbles the universities in being able to make an argument about what they're doing and why and kind of further the legitimacy of taking race into account. And I think we've just kind of been missing that ever since. Why does it in the current context to hobble it? Because if you make moral or historical arguments, aren't those even less likely to convince the conservatives now than the diversity for its own sake? And I also want to ask you about 
if there's any good, if there's any way to, other than the, the sort of obvious one, to read what Alito and Thomas said about diversity from the oral arguments, because it seems so confusing to me, because they're like, what is diversity? I don't even know what it is. What does that mean? There's got to be some other way to read that other than, anyway, it just seems irritatingly obtuse. So I'm sure I have an incomplete understanding. However, back to my original question, which is, would it be fair to say that there's a moral argument, the racial argument, and then the diversity is good for its own sake argument? Isn't the diversity is good for its own sake argument kind of the best one if you're going up to a conservative court? So Thomas and Alito, yes, did this whole, I don't know what diversity is. Why does it have any educational benefits? The other conservative justices really didn't go there, though. They went in a different direction, which was to challenge whether you really need to take race directly into account in admissions in order to further your goal of racial diversity. So what I mean by that is right now, when you apply to college, you check a box for race. And then what the schools are allowed to do under the Supreme Court's rules is consider that as one factor among many in your admission. But in some cases, it's the determinative factor. Like, that's what we learned at the big trial that Harvard um, had in this case before it went to the Supreme Court. Um, And I, I think this is important to say, though, that It can be the determinative factor for 55 percent of the black and Latino students at Harvard. It's not the determinative factor. They get in without consideration of race. But then there is this 45 percent for whom it is an important consideration. And so that's what's at issue in this case. Can schools like Harvard keep doing that? Or the kind of clear preference of the conservative justices is to tell the schools you can't directly consider race. They could say, well, for the sake of argument, we're not going to tell you you can't do that, but you can't do it this way. And that would cause a really dramatic shift in how schools do admissions. I have so many questions. I'm just going to try to limit myself to like three. One, I know you've answered this before. Why does does the Supreme Court get to say what Harvard's admissions policy can and can't be? Because Harvard takes federal funding. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. And almost every school takes federal funding, right? Like, this is just part of how schools work. The bigger question I actually had, Emily, is why is it that this whole affirmative action fight is always waged on university admissions? Can governments have minority preferences in contracting, for example? Is that still legal? Yes. And there's another case against the University of North Carolina before the Supreme Court. So there's both public and private schools um, at issue in uh, right now. I actually am perplexed, Emily, because I know you're saying that minority set-asides aren't allowed. Is it really there's no affirmative action anywhere except in American universities anymore? Not really. So that's a great question. And one of the things I tried to do in my piece was to show that when affirmative action starts in the 60s, it's really about jobs. It's about employment and contracting. And it starts in the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. We're going to force construction companies to work with unions that are not solely white people. We're going to use the pressure of government contracting or local and state agencies and private employers get into this business too. Like we care about diversifying our ranks because we can see that we have kept out people of color like deliberately. And so it's going to take more than just sort of pretending to open the gates. We're going to have to really like do something affirmative here, right? Affirmative action. We're going to take direct steps to address um, these inequities. It was all about jobs. And 
uh, this was super interesting to me. Nixon continued this. Nixon said, my civil rights platform is job-based, and I'm going to do more than the Democrats on this front. Then when he ran for re-election, that all fell away. He started running on a platform of kind of catering to white grievance and denouncing quotas. And so the Carter administration tries to draw this distinction between goals and quotas. We believe in goals. We're against quotas. It's a little tricky, but they keep that going. And then basically in the 1980s, this very same Supreme Court uh, is no longer going to keep the door open to this kind of preference for, you know, what are called like minority set-asides in government contracting or minority hiring preferences by government agencies. And Justice Powell plays a key role there, too. He says no to that kind of affirmative action. And the person on the other side of those arguments in a very passionate eloquent way is Thurgood Marshall, who, of course, is the court's civil rights champion. And he is the one saying this is really a mistake. And, you know, to, just to take a step back, <laughs> we saw this with the Supreme Court in the 1870s as well. There is like a nanosecond in which the court and I think a lot of white Americans are willing to tolerate anything they think disadvantages white people to the advantage of people of color. Like it literally lasts for one second. And then everyone's like, nope, done, enough. And and I think you see that pattern, you know, both after Reconstruction, ending Reconstruction, and then again after the Civil Rights Movement. Telling so well the story of Archibald Cox, including with the Pepperidge Farm cookies, which I thought was just a delight. Um he was carefully making this pitch to the different justices, and it seems so tailored to win at um, argument. Is that even possible anymore? I mean, I know lawyers prepare and they do really a lot of work to succeed at oral argument, but it just seemed like there was a chance that he could make a case and make an argument because of the composition of the court at the time. And now there's just much less um, chance that argumentation is going to win the day. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just the argument, it was also the briefs. But I mean, what you just said, John, was a point that a few people I talked to made. There's this lawyer, Jim Bierman, who helped Cox. He was like a young lawyer at the time. And then um, I talked to a couple of former law clerks, and they also said the answer was truly unknown. It wasn't just Justice Powell who was in play. Justice Blackman was new to the court. Justice Stevens was pretty new. And this issue had not arisen. So it was called a case of first impression. That's a legal term of art where like the court for the first time is weighing in on some major policy question in American life. And it wasn't clear what the answer would be. And I think we have much, much less of that now. That seems fair. But is the variability of outcome, I mean, is it between A and B or is it between A and Z and Q? It's between like A and A minus, right? Because I mean, <laughs> affirmative action as we know it means race conscious admissions with this plus factor I was talking about. I think the chance that that survives is very low. Whether the schools are going to be able to figure out a way to use measures of class and family wealth and neighborhood poverty level to produce something that still has some racial diversity in it, that's a different and really interesting question that's likely, I think, to unfold over the next few years. But I don't think that the sort of younger conservative justices are really open to maintaining the status quo. Right. But they are open to maintaining what you just described, possibly. Whereas I think if you had Alito and Thomas writing a decision, it would be, you, you know, you have to admit people based on a set of incredibly narrow, specific criteria, and you can't look at where they come from at all. I mean, maybe. 
maybe, although Alito wrote a dissent a few years ago in which he sort of suggested that the University of Texas at Austin, which was one option open to them, was to consider socioeconomic factors. So that's why I feel hopeful about these sort of class-based diversity um, measures. But I mean, he could totally have a bait and switch and just be like, no, I'm not into that anymore. So yeah, I do think that it is not clear what all six conservative justices, exactly what they're going to say and where they're going to tell universities to go next. You should read Emily's article, The Undoing of Affirmative Action in the New York Times. It is always a red letter day on the Gabfest when the journalist and now Washington Post columnist Amanda Ripley joins us because that means we are going to learn something about how people are doing something hard, but they're doing something hard well. Today, we're going to discuss a really fascinating column by Amanda in the Washington Post from last weekend. The title of it is, These Radically Simple Changes Helped Lawmakers Actually Get Things Done. So, Amanda, what is the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which honestly I had never heard of, and why did you write about it? This is the sleeper story of the year. Okay, so the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress is one of these temporary pop-up committees that Congress creates every so often to try to reform itself. And you can imagine how that usually goes, right? So the last time they did this was in 2018. They did a select committee to try to reform the budgeting process and came up with exactly zero recommendations by the end of the year. So basically, it is if we sat down and were like, let's design a committee to fail, this is what you would do. You would say, okay, the select committee on modernization has no power. Uh, They need a supermajority of votes to get things done, so two-thirds of their members, and we're going to divide them cleanly in half, half Republicans, half Democrats, six and six, and they're going to disappear after a year. All they can do is make recommendations and hope that the rest of Congress passes them, right? So you're thinking, this is not a committee I'm going to bet on, right? But in fact, this bizarre thing happens where uh, they not only pass 202 bipartisan recommendations, but two-thirds of them end up getting implemented or are well on their way to implementation. And their colleagues, they're so functioning that their colleagues vote to extend their term twice and they end up quadrupling their uh, lifespan to four years. And now the Republican-controlled majority has just decided to reincarnate this committee as a subcommittee on the House Administration Committee. There's a lot of boring words I'm saying right now. Uh, But underneath all of that, all of those words, is a story, a mystery. How did this happen? And that's what I wanted to write about. There was a roll call uh, reporter who, after going to a hearing, he called it a parallel congressional universe. How did this happen, that this group was getting so much done despite being totally divided and disagreeing on many, many, many important things. And how did it happen, especially in the wake of January 6th, which increased the tensions between the members? So basically, yes, especially after January 6th, it did not look good for this committee or obviously any committee. So Derek Kilmer, who is the very earnest um, chair of this committee, a Democrat from Washington State, He is a former management consultant, um, a very sweet guy who has Star Wars throw pillows in his office and the rotary four-way test on his wall and all of these things. He met with each member of the committee shortly after January 6th to ask what they wanted to work on that year. And basically, they all said nothing. They don't want to be in the same room together. 
So he figured um, this is going to be a big problem, right, for everybody, but especially for that committee because they need two-thirds agreement to get anything done. So he sat down with his chief of staff and he was like, we're screwed. You know, we're, we're going to have to do a bunch of stuff differently. And they did. So along with William Timmons, who was his Republican vice chair, Republican from South Carolina, they did a bunch of things differently. And probably the most surprising one and the one that made me most curious is that they are the only committee I know of to have sat down behind closed doors with a facilitator and had an honest talk about January 6th. And they couldn't move on until they did that. Just like any group of people who have been through some kind of trauma and violation to their dignity and all of these things we know from human behavior and psychology, you need to talk about this stuff. And so they did, um, to their credit, right? It was not easy and it didn't resolve anything, but it allowed them to be in the same room together and get things done. And you can see what happens when that doesn't happen, um, which is most of the rest of Congress. Is there a way in which this committee operates in a safer space relative to the other fights that other committees have? So obviously January 6th is a super contentious issue. Is there something about the issue set that is different here that makes them coming together possible? I mean, yes and no, right? I mean, on the one hand, they're trying to fix Congress, and a lot of that is arcane logistical stuff. If you, as you all probably know, if you talk to any member of Congress, they're really grumpy. They're pretty miserable. And it's not just polarization, although that's at least half of the grumpiness. But the other half is their jobs are miserable. And a lot of that is just basic stuff. Like they get double and triple booked for hearings. Um, They have no time to eat lunch. (laughs) There are no bipartisan workspaces for them to just sit down and have a casual conversation easily uh, in the Capitol complex. These things make them kind of miserable. And it's funny talking to them because it's like you almost feel like you're talking to workers at an Amazon warehouse. They have a lot of complaints and you're thinking, but wait, you're not workers at an Amazon warehouse. Why don't you just fix this? You all have a lot of power, right? Well, as you know better than I do, John, they don't have as much power over those things as they would like. The speaker, the leadership has the power. And so they're very grumpy about this. So yes, they are united in their desire to fix a bunch of stuff. That said, remember, previous attempts to do this, including the last modernization committee, the last panel tasked with fixing Congress, uh, ended a year later with no impact. So There's something else going on here in addition to the fact that, yes, they're not dealing with like immigration reform. I actually am different from John and Emily and perhaps you and that I was uninterested in the January 6th part and super interested in some of the other things you talked about, which is how physically they worked together, how they ran meetings, how they hired, how they socialized. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that, because at first I was a little dismissive of that when I first heard about it a year or two ago. But then over time, I started to think it actually really matters. It just sounds so obvious. This is one of the things that really is striking. Um, If you spend any time in the Capitol, basic things you would do in any kindergarten classroom to prevent mayhem they are not doing, right? Anything you know would work, like sitting boy-girl, right? Sitting Republican-Democrat, they don't do, right? So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, in other words, if we want to get better about 
uh, particularly toxic conflict, right? Now, there's a lot of bigger problems that you all talk about all the time that lead to toxic conflict in politics. But then there's a bunch of just obvious crap that we could do and are not doing that they did. So to answer your question, some of the things they did is they, first of all, would eat dinner together on a regular basis. This is Representative Timmons, uh, the Republican from South Carolina, who really pushed for this. And he said it was insanely hard to do just to find a space where they could have dinner together. Um, took him a huge amount of work. So you see what I mean? It's all locked up by the speaker's office, according to them. So it's very hard. There's not like a Google sheet that you can go on and just reserve one of the billion empty rooms. By the way, it's not like there's no space, right? You know, there's a lot of marbled uh, halls and empty rooms in the Capitol complex. So then the other thing they did is they started sitting Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. And um, they were super proud of this, by the way, which was sort of adorable. But I actually think it matters more than it sounds like it does because there are these moments and hearings where something funny happens or something confuses you and you might write a note or gesture to the person sitting next to you. And now they're doing that um, across party lines. They also sat at the around a conference table, essentially, as opposed to up on high, the way most hearings are. Also very difficult to do, to just find the space. Ironically, they were often in the Armed Services Committee hearing room because that was the one space where they could configure the furniture this way easily. <laughs> so there were some basic things they did that seem really small, but they just rave about it. And um, Yuri Beckelman, who was the um, staffer, like chief of staff for this committee, he just said he was amazing how much the members loved that configuration. They loved not having, they took away a lot of the formal strictures, like the five minute rule of how long they can talk at hearings and only being able to talk based on seniority and all that kind of old school nonsense they just took away. So people talked when they had something to say or had a question to ask. And people really liked it. So Dean Phillips, who's a Democrat from Minnesota, who was on the committee, he said, I learned more in one hour in a modernization committee hearing than weeks sitting in every other committee venue. And he said, we learn by conversation, not confrontation. And then he said, it was the most profoundly meaningful and gratifying time I've spent in Congress. It seems like then you've named at least three things. One is contact. The other is intentionality to fix this problem, to do the work right, to even show up at the meeting to figure out how to do this. And the third is a sufficiently open mind or curious mind that you're willing to actually sit and listen to this person who you might otherwise write off. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the central question, is how do you rebuild trust in all of our institutions? Um, And it's just like a couple in an ugly divorce. I mean, the reality is they have to deal with their kids, right? So you don't trust each other at all. And yet, you have to deal with your kids. So then how do we build just enough trust and just enough guardrails and just enough sort of rituals so that we can get things done for the country? There are members of Congress, I would say it's a small number, who do not want to do any of this. They do not want to get things done, right? So that is undeniably true, and we need to stop electing these people, right? But in a time of high conflict, you get a bunch in this sort of conflict industrial complex that we've created, you get a bunch of um, players who benefit from the conflict. 
And some of them are obvious, right? But some of them are less obvious. And so the example of the speaker not allowing there to be easily reservable bipartisan spaces for dinners and collaboration is an example of how uh, this kind of conflict breeds dysfunction. And there's a million other examples, but that's a particularly fixable one. And I would say, to their credit, one of the recommendations they did get passed created um, some bipartisan dinners through the Library of Congress. So they sort of took it out of the speaker's purview, and also some bipartisan um, programming for new members for freshman orientation. Any organization, any company, if you're onboarding is very important, right? And you want to do it right. And you you might want to have some times where you have to talk to each other. So um, that is just a basic thing you would do and they're trying to do now. On the family analogy, there are some members of Congress who don't care about the kids, who care more about the money and the attention that comes from being of conflict entrepreneurs, as you've coined. Um, But let me ask you if it's possible to identify the basic component parts uh, that are required. Um, And this is why January 6th really struck me and the fact that they were able to work through that, because it seems to me that um, that's one of the events where basically you could easily write somebody off. I mean, and just say, like, the fact that you voted with or even had a moment of patience for an attempt to overthrow an election, you are just not even engaged in the democratic process, and therefore, why would I ever want to deal with you? So how they got over that hurdle. But then is it possible to identify two or three of the norms of what we would have used to have thought was statesmanship in the old days that are the kind of preconditions for being in the group of people who, as difficult as it may be, create these bridges. Yeah, I think the most important norm is um, contact. So there's a thing called contact theories, which is like the most researched human uh, intervention to prevent discrimination and dehumanization. And it's been tested in 500 experiments all over the world. And basically it means people need to spend time together under certain conditions um, and not always in an adversarial way, right? So another way of putting this is when I asked William Timmons, the Republican from South Carolina, what was the secret of this committee? He said in very dry typical form, he said, we actually spent time together and we talked about things. (laughs) So uh, that sounds really simple, but then how do you get that? Well, you need to have spaces where that's going to happen more organically. Everything is segregated by party up on the hill, including the um, sort of antechambers outside of the floor, outside of the hearing rooms. Um, There just aren't spaces where there are no cameras there for people to have normal conversations and see each other as three-dimensional humans. So spaces do matter, and that would be one way to try to create that contact. Um, But there are others, and I think the bottom line is once you talk to someone, including when I interviewed Congressman Timmons about this, I don't agree with how he voted um, on the night of January 6th. And it was interesting to hear what he said about it. And it also didn't change my mind, didn't change his mind. But it opened up just a blip of curiosity where there was none. And sometimes what you need, even before trust, is curiosity. And to get to that, you need to have a little bit of space that is not 100% threatening. I was really struck 
reading and now listening to you about the challenge of building trust. I mean, they have to decide they even want to build trust, right? When you really, really vehemently disagree with people and you think they're doing harm in the world, maybe you don't even want to take the steps that um, lead to building trust. And they were able to get over that hump by spending time with each other, becoming three-dimensional human beings to each other, I think. I wonder if that can translate into other settings in Congress or whether it's more important to both sides to show that they vehemently disagree in a way that just erases trust. Interestingly, I think that last one is optional. What I've seen again and again is people come into the room not curious, and then they get curious. So it's sort of like, just to take this analogy too far, couples therapy. I have this theory that most couples who go to therapy, it's because they want some third party to validate that they're right. And then you get in the door and you realize that this is more complicated, ideally, if the therapist is any good, right? And so uh, that's what usually happens in these kinds of difficult conversations that I've witnessed is people are not super curious coming in. But yes, they do have some overarching uh, problem that gets them in the door. And I would say most members of Congress have a problem, which is they don't actually like being this way. At least the vast majority do not like the level of hostility that they live and work in and certainly don't like the threats to themselves and their families. Given that, Amanda, have you seen any evidence that what happened on this committee has infected the rest of Congress or could infect any other part of the rest of Congress or really, no, it's just a a small Xanadu that will never be again. Well, I think some of those changes that they made will have a a quiet percolating effect, like having more bipartisan dinners, like changes to the relentless scheduling so they're not double booked as much, hopefully. Uh, Those kinds of things are on a low level, helpful. I do think there need to be more changes from many different directions, but it is encouraging that uh, the Republican leadership has decided to continue the work of the committee, and uh, Congressman Kilmer will be on that that subcommittee now as well. So you get some continued leadership there, which is really important and a big piece of this that we haven't talked about is that leaders do matter, and you need someone who really gets it in charge. Amanda Ripley's article in the Washington Post, these radically simple changes helped lawmakers actually get things done. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are having a bipartisan drink on your bipartisan porch with a bipartisan friend. Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? I wanted to recommend a new piece in the New York Review of Books by John J. Lennon. It's called Peddling Darkness. It's about um, true crime stories and John trying to think through um, this really tricky issue. In There's a new book out called Scoundrel that's about um, someone who was convicted of murder, um, I think in the 1940s or 50s, befriended William F. Buckley. Buckley helped him get out. Then he committed another murder, um, and it turned out had also committed the first murder because he confessed to it. And so it's like an innocence-gone-totally-wrong story. And John is writing about it as a way of um, trying to think through what these true crime narratives um, really tell us and what role they play. John is a colleague of mine. We've been working together on a project um, at Yale Law School called the Prison Law Project, where we've been answering the mail that I get from people who are incarcerated, and we've created a database, and um, John's been writing up some of those stories uh, for the New York Times. And he is incarcerated himself. He is a con- someone who was convicted of murder and other crimes, um, 
and is in the 22nd year of what I think is a 28-year sentence. So it's a personal essay, too, about what it means for other people on the outside to kind of take a risk by trying to help someone on the inside who's been convicted of killing someone, the most terrible crime there is. Um, and it's just really thoughtful and good. John is um, just an excellent writer and interesting thinker and a really distinctive voice. Um, so Peddling Darkness, The New York Review of Books by John J. Lennon. Both William F. Buckley and Norman Mailer took up the cause of people who were in prison, and both those people came out of prison and then committed another violent act. That's a weird coincidence. John, what is your chatter? I have a double chatter. Uh, the first part of my chatter is on this day in 1861. Abraham Lincoln, on his way down to Washington, stopped to uh, thank 11-year-old Grace Bedell in person for her advice that he grow a beard uh, in order to gain more votes. So um, lest you think that the um, the odd things candidates do to appeal to voters uh, is a modern phenomenon, um, old Abe was not um, immune to that. That's an incredibly famous act, though. That's astonishing. That is the most famous beard that's ever been in America. I think that's undoubtedly the case. And then I'd like to say uh, this, which is um, Stephen Fry uh, has narrated, and I must confess that I have only tasted it. I have not um, listened to the whole thing, but um, he narrates, um, and we'll put the link in uh, the show notes, um, a Vermeer exhibit. Um, And Vermeer is quite extraordinary uh, as a painter. But then Stephen Fry narrating and explaining why Vermeer was so amazing is quite amazing. So if you like Vermeer, or if you'd like to be introduced to Vermeer, check out Stephen Fry's narration of the Vermeer uh, exhibit. My chatter uh, is what I thought was a really great piece by David French, sometime GabFest guest, David French, now a New York Times columnist, called Men Need Purpose More Than Respect. It's a piece about this kind of trope in mostly in conservative America that men need to be respected more. And that's a problem and that they aren't receiving respect from liberals, not receiving respect from their children and from their and that if they're only given respect, they'll be fine. And David's piece, which I thought was just brilliantly explained, I thought it was a really wise piece, is that actually respect is is not what people need. It's they, they need a purpose. They need a purpose and they need to be uh working for the benefit of others and working towards a goal and working towards an end. And it's not the newest insight anyone's ever had that you do better when you're caring for others than when you're caring for yourself. But it was, uh, I thought, a a really smart piece. So check it out in uh, the New York Times. Also, I just want to remind you, DC listeners, that we're doing a live CityCast DC episode on March 1st at Politics and Prose in Union Market. I will be there along with Mike Schaefer and Dan Reed and the Washington Post's uh, Lori Aratani. And we're going to be talking about what's going on in D.C. I'll be talking about some great books that are coming out. And uh, it's free. We'll be going out for drinks afterwards. Join us. There's a uh, Eventbrite link in the show notes, or you can just show up, or you can email me at davidplazagmail.com, and I can let you know how to get there. But Politics and Prose, Union Market, 630 on March 1st. Listeners, you chatter also. Thank you for chattering. Thank you for sending us many good chatters. Um, 
there were a bunch of really good ones that I actually took super pleasure in watching on YouTube this week that you sent. And our listener chatter today is from Tim Anderson. Hi, GapFest listeners. I came across a fascinating video about the Vermeer exhibit in Amsterdam. They've gathered his paintings from all over the world and now have 28 of his 37 known paintings on display. With these all in one place, they've taken advantage of it to do some scientific research. Using high-tech scans, they've been able to reveal what's under the top painting, the painting that we see. And it's revealed some pretty amazing things about his underpainting technique, where he was much more hasty in his in his work than previously thought. Uh, he, in fact, would sometimes paint entire paintings and then in the final result, paint out objects that, that had uh, previously been shown. Uh, it's, it's just really fascinating, even if you just have a rudimentary understanding, like I do, uh, I think you'll find this fascinating. It's about nine minutes long. When you have a chance, please take a look. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth and Tori Dominguez. Bridget Dunlap is our researcher for a little bit longer. Remember, if you want to be our researcher, email us at gabfestaslate.com, as I described at the top, with a resume and cover letter. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio of Slate. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there or email us that at gabfestaslate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? If you live in East Palestine, Ohio, probably not as well as you did a couple of weeks ago. John, why are we talking about East Palestine? And why is it Palestine and not Palestine? I don't know. For that, I don't have an answer. So basically what happened was that um, uh, there was a train derailment um, that itself unleashed incredibly toxic chemicals into the air, um, on February 3rd, there were fires, and um, and then there was a, a kind of controlled release as a part of the mitigation effort. It was also part of this. And basically what happened was residents of East Palestine, Ohio, which is near the Pennsylvania border, um, were told to um, evacuate. And the reason they were told to evacuate is not only were the chemicals themselves that were leaking dangerous, but then there was a way in which the chemicals um would change um, in the course of the um, in the course of the, the dispersal. There are six chemicals, I think, that was in the end, um, and vinyl chloride was the main one, and that's um, a carcinogen. But others are basically what ended were, as I understand it, what was basically used as chemical weaponry in World War One. One of the one of the um, the chemicals that could get out. So very bad, very bad stuff. Okay. Residents, it's dispersed. Residents are told you can go back. But then they're told, well, uh, drink just bottled water and we're going to test the water to make sure it's okay. Residents have subsequently been um, saying that they've gotten rashes, that it's hard to breathe. 3,500 fish um, in the Ohio River have died. Um, And there are questions about, um, you know, is it in the water? Is it in the air? Is it in in the ground? And how long will this health risk stick around. Um, and there's a political angle, which is, and this is, I think, unresolved, although there are a lot of partisans who say that the train, um, the trains 
and the train operators were forced by by agreements um, to basically do things that were unsafe, and that um, that that has led um, that has led to this. Jason Cox, who was the representative for the um, Brotherhood of Railway Carmen during the union negotiations that the White House was involved in with railroad companies, um, said back um, some time ago. Basically, he said it's only a matter of time before there's a huge disaster in someone's neighborhood. And um, that's the kind of thing people are saying, well, you know, he and others called it. And this is what's the result of that, putting too much pressure on too few workers to do too much. Um, And so now it's like it's incredibly confusing. People are being told it's okay to drink water, not okay to drink water. And and people are talking about leaving permanently, changing jobs. And it's all kind of up in the air at the moment. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 